0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. As we continue through these letters or sermons to the churches found in Revelation, this morning we come to the message to the church at Philadelphia. Hear now the word of the Lord. First, I will pray. (laughs) Lord, we do thank you that you are the God who holds the keys, that you do open and close things. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what Christ is saying to us. Be our teacher, you are the great teacher, and lead us into all truth, O Spirit, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, hear now the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts, no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name.
1: Anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. There is once this guy
0: named Shebna. He shows up in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Anybody ever heard of Shebna? Yeah, guess not. Uh, I went to seminary. I never heard of Shebna myself and never came across that name. But I came across it in my study of this through uh, Waima's book. He brought Shebna to my attention. He's a guy that appears in the prophecy of Isaiah. And Shebna was what was called a palace administrator or the master of the palace. If you think of the chief of staff of the president, kind of the role that this person had. He was the gatekeeper to power. And sometimes people who hold those positions, they get confused, right? They think they are the source of power. And that was true in Shevna's case. He was really kind of full of himself. He had the the key, you know, he had the vestments and the robe, and he had the control of the access to the king. And he began to think that he was the one who really held the power. And he thought of himself in such grandiose terms that he decided, you know what, I think I should be buried among the kings of Israel. After all, look how great I am. So he did that. He commissioned a grave to be crafted and built for him among the prophets and kings of Israel. And when the prophet Isaiah learned of this, God brought it to the prophet Isaiah's attention. God had a very different plan for Shebna. Here's a direct quote from Isaiah. This comes from the message translation. The master God of the angel armies spoke, Come, go to this steward, Shebna, who's in charge of all the king's affairs, and tell him. God speaking to Isaiah, "Tell, tell, tell Shebna this, What's going on here? You're an outsider here, and yet you act like you own the place. Make a big fancy tomb for yourself where everyone can see it. Make sure everyone will think you're important. God is about to sack you throw you to the dogs. He'll grab you by the hair, swing you round and round, dizzyingly, then let you go, sailing through the air like a ball until you're out of sight. Where you land, nobody knows. There you'll die. All the stuff you've collected, heaped on your grave. You've disgraced your master's house. You're fired. Good
1: riddance. That's what God had to say
0: to Shebna. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on in Isaiah, where we hear about Shebna's replacement, who is Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. And God, through Isaiah, speaks and tells about this new one who will take Shebna's role. He says of him in Isaiah 22, verse 22, I will place on his shoulder, that is Eliakim, the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut.
1: He shall shut. No one shall open.
0: And with those words, God communicated to Shebna and to all of Israel that there was a new sheriff in town, that Eliakim was replacing Shebna. Shebna had been thrown out on his backside. There was a new sheriff in town, and by those words, God communicated to Shebna and all of Israel that he is the source of all authority and power. He is the one who ultimately holds the keys. This morning we come to the sixth of the seven letters in Revelation. We're almost at the end of this, these seven letters. And here in this letter or sermon to the church at Philadelphia, the key word is promise. This text is about a promise, and that's refreshing because most of these are about a problem, right? Something the church is doing wrong, but this is about a promise, a promise that God holds the keys, that God is sovereign, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it. He holds the key. So let's look this morning at what Jesus had to say to the church at Philadelphia, and then we'll look at what this might mean for us today in the church of the 21st century. So let's go to the first slide, and we begin with the Christ title. Here's how Jesus identifies himself to the church at Philadelphia. He says, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You can see there are three things here Jesus uses to identify him that he is the holy one. He is the true one or the trustworthy one and he has the key of David and of course this is directly a reference to that passage I just read to you from Isaiah 22:22 22, 22. you can't help but hear the echoes. What Jesus is telling this church here, a church that was facing persecution, a church that was having doors shut and locked in its face, literally. They were being kicked out of the synagogue. They were being expelled from their communities. They were being isolated socially in their culture. So both in the synagogue and in society, the doors were being shut. Jesus tells these people who are persecuted, don't worry,
1: because I hold the key. I am the source
0: of true authority and power. That's how he identifies uh, himself to that church. He gives them comfort, and then he goes immediately into commendation. We go to the next slide. We see what Jesus says to this church, and I have this little note with interruptions because that's how it plays out in the text. I've tried to just isolate here the commendation. What is right about this church? Jesus says to them, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name because you have kept my word of patient endurance. We know what this church is doing right. Despite the persecution, despite doors being slammed in their face, they are keeping the word of the Lord. They are following God. They have not denied the name of Christ despite what they have lost. They are being faithful, and all Jesus has is good things to say about them. It's almost effusive. The text is kind of frenzied if you read it. It has these interruptions that I don't have there. But what Jesus does, which is unlike any of the other letters, is he gives them this commendation. And then he kind of interrupts himself and says, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he he keeps going like this. It's almost this sense of effusive praise. This church is doing things right. And the core of that right behavior is keeping God's word, keeping Jesus' word, and not denying his name. And then we come to the complaint. Next slide. None. Right? Last week it was the other way around with Sardis, right? Here, there's no complaint at all. Jesus is so filled with praise for this church that they're doing what is right. And again, The silence, the absence of that is working to emphasize, to make it even more emphatic, how good this church is, how faithful they are, how pleased he is with them. He's emphatic in his praise. There is no complaint against this church, nothing against And then he comes to the next slide here, the correction. Here's where Jesus fixes what's wrong, right? He tells people, here's how you can fix it. And of course, In a place where there's no complaint, we can expect very little need of correction. And that is true here. Jesus basically says to them, I'm coming soon, so hold fast to what you have. Basically, keep doing what you're doing, because you're doing it right. Keep my word. Don't deny my name. There's really no need to correct. Just stay the course. And then we come to the next slide, to the consequence. If they were to fall back from what they were doing, Jesus gives them a negative consequence. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you fail to keep on keeping on, you're at risk of losing these blessings I'm going to give and am giving to you. But then he gives them the positive consequence. Next slide. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write... On you, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Again, it's almost this sense of effusive, large, massive praise. If you keep going on like you are, I will give you these things. First, I will make you a pillar of the house of God. What do you think of when you think of Pillars. Think of that kind of Greek architecture, right? That, those marble pillars. And that would have been really what would have been thought of then, too. And a pillar brings up the idea of stability and strength. A place of remaining. We still talk about someone who is a pillar of the community. What Jesus is saying, if you keep my word and don't deny my name, if you keep on doing what you're doing, I will fix you permanently. And you will never leave. No one will take you out of the temple of God. Your salvation will be secure. And then he will give them these three names. Again, this repetitive nature emphasizing. He will give you the name of God, the name of the city of God, and a new name. And that implies also this idea of security, of being a possession, of being a child of God. We name our children. And God names his children. And he's telling them here, you will have this name. You will be part of my family, and no one will change that. You will be secure in your salvation. He conveys to them that they belong to him, and no one will snatch them from his. A Proclamation of assurance, and of comfort, and of hope. And they can know all of that. They can have assurance that all of this will happen because he holds
1: the key he has the authority to go to the next slide so that's what
0: it meant for them this was a sermon to the church at philadelphia a sermon to a church facing persecution and this was a sermon that came as a word of encouragement a word of assurance to them where god promised them jesus specifically to this church that had very little power
1: jesus says i am your
0: power. I am your power. I hold the keys. So keep my word. Don't deny my name, and I will take care of the
1: rest. I got you. That's what it meant for them. Me. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? We can go now to our general slide.
0: Well, let's think about that this morning, because that really is the big question. What does it mean for the church today, for us here, R.C.R.C., 21st century? Now, clearly, persecution is central to this message. The church in Philadelphia was facing persecution. And there are many places in our world where Christians are facing persecution. You can go to the Voice of the Martyrs, you can go to Open Doors USA, you can get that information where those places are, and you could probably guess where they are. There's places where you could preach this sermon, and you wouldn't really need to make any type of you know, a bridge or application. People would get it immediately because they're living in that persecution.
1: That's really not the case for us here.
0: Wyma points out in his book that the 21st century church in America would be better described as privileged
1: rather than persecuted. And that's fair, right? We have to agree. But he also goes on to note, quote, this privileged position is quickly changing, end quote changing. I think that's right. That position is changing.
0: The process of secularization has been going on for a long time, and it has accelerated even in the past century and into this century. And for a while, that process of secularization was almost, I think, liberating for certain Christians, right? It wasn't immediately a threat to the Christian faith. For a long time, as our society became more and more secular, we were still borrowing the capital of the mores and the norms, and the values of a Judeo-Christian ethic. It was still there in the fabric and foundation, in the warp and the woof of our culture. And I can remember the promise of postmodernism. I remember, you know, this was the, the big rage in the, in the mid-90s, the even early uh, aughts. It was this kind of idea that postmodern. this is great. Because now there won't be one kind of hegemonic kind of narrative. We'll all be able to play ball in a marketplace of ideas, right? Once we get rid of the idea... You know it, it, uh, that there's one powerful narrative that explains everything. Then we're all going to have a chance at the table. We're all going to be in this marketplace of ideas. This is an opportunity for the gospel, an opportunity for the for Christians. And books were written like crazy about the postmodern opportunity. How postmodernism made science you know, less trustworthy, rationalism less trustworthy, people were more skeptical, and so maybe we had this opportunity to preach the gospel. This was going to be the greatest opportunity since the early church.
1: But in a lot of ways, it
0: has not played out that way, has it? This new wave of secularization is no longer borrowing the capital of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And it's certainly not any longer tolerant of multi-perspectivalism, right? It is not really interested in hearing a variety of viewpoints in in a marketplace of idea. There is a new high priest arising, right? There is something more akin to a new inquisition, a new form of McCarthyism in our culture where you can have a free marketplace. You're being
1: told to watch your mouth or else. So we may,
0: in a way, be seeing this and even this text be much more applicable to ourselves. If you think about the problem in the church of Philadelphia, it was that doors were being slammed in their face, that they were being excluded from aspects of society, having to, in essence, retreat from those areas of life Maybe we're not so different after all. Maybe things are going in that very direction. First comes exclusion, then comes marginalization, then comes persecution. Privilege privilege gives way to persecution. We may not be so different.
1: Winter may indeed be coming, right? Things have changed. Now, some of you may be concerned, all right pastor's
0: gone off the deep end. He's going to start talking about conspiracy theories. He's going to you know, start giving some kind of cultural war rant here to us this morning.
1: But I'm not going to. Do don't worry.
0: Because that's not what Jesus does in the text. If we say that's what's going to happen, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not a prophet in that sense. But if we say that's going to happen, that this is the persecution to come, that it is like what happened in Philadelphia. Well, what did Jesus tell this church to do in the face of it? Well, he told them to go out and create a nonprofit organization to
1: fight the defamation of Christians. No. He told them to go out and whine on social media and adopt a victimization narrative. No.
0: Jesus went off on a populist culture war rant against those nasty Romans and the synagogue holders. No, he didn't do any of those things. What did he do? He reminded this church of a fundamental truth, the most important truth, and that is that he holds the key to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of the Holy One, the true One, One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And here's what I think that means for us.
1: If we believe that truth, Jesus
0: holds the key, that Jesus has all power and authority, that it ultimately resides in and with him, then we don't have to worry about how much power we have. We don't. Our calling is not to grasp power or to fear the loss of power. Rather, it is to keep his word and not deny his name. This is how a Christian walks through persecution. This is what Jesus says to do. Keep my name. Keep my word. If all power is in Christ, we don't have to worry about how much power we have. Isn't that what Jesus says to this church? The doors were slamming in their face. They were a church without power. Isn't that what Christ says? Verse 8 I
1: know that you have but little power. And then he says, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. He doesn't say, go get power. He doesn't say, go lobby. He says, keep my word. Keep my name. Our power is in Christ.
0: That's what he teaches this church. And you see, we face a temptation as a church. When this kind of stuff happens, when we get the door closed in our face, right? When those doors of society are closed, the marketplace is closed, whatever area, right? this sense of exclusion where we feel pushed out, we face a moment of temptation. And there are really two parts of this temptation. Carl Truman in the the uh, recent issue, November issue of First Things, he writes about this in an article called The Failure of Evangelical Elites. And this is what he writes. He says, There are times in history when Christianity feels its place in society coming under threat. As it finds itself pushed to the margins, two temptations emerge. Two temptations. The first is an angry sense of entitlement an impulse to denounce the entire world and withdraw into cultural isolation. Right? You turtle. You go in, you circle the wagons. He goes on. In the early 20th century, American fundamentalism offered a good example of this tendency, renouncing public engagement, defining itself against alcohol, evolution, the movies, characteristic productions of a society by which it felt attacked. You feel attacked, doors are slammed, you turtle. He goes on, arguably, we see something of the same thing today in evangelical support for Donald Trump. So in this case, populist Protestantism is contending for America's future rather than retreating from its
1: present. That's one thing.
0: Trying to get the power back by either turtling Trying to find some way to assure that you will have power, some champion of power, some Shebna-like figure, if you will. And then he goes on the other tendency. Here's the other tendency. The second tendency is more subtle and more seductive, while appearing to be valiant for truth. It conforms Christianity to the spirit of the age. If fundamentalists. 1st fish fist-shaking is the temptation of the ragamuffin masses. Accommodation appeals to those who seek a seat at the table among society's elite. And these elite aspirations often blame the masses when their invitation to high table fails to materialize. Do you see what he's saying? The other temptation to get power is just to ape the culture. Because you want a seat at the table with all the social elites, all of those who possess power, all the high priests and priestesses of our age. And so what do you do? You start to conform Christianity to it. You start telling people, well, it doesn't really
1: say that in the Bible. Because you want a seat at the table of power.
0: These are the temptations we face right now as a church. Those are the twin temptations that we face. It's a temptation of like the Shebna thing, you know, seeking after power and thinking it is ours. Or we compromise in a way to get us power to to fit in into this culture because we desire to be in that inner ring. C.S. Lewis has... Uh, An essay called The Inner Ring entitled that, where he talks about this human desire. We all want to be in the inner circle. We all want to be there. And it's not necessarily wrong to want to aspire to those things, but you better be careful. Because it's fraught with temptation to want to be there. And you'll compromise sometimes many things to be there. And it might actually harm you to be there. And when you get to the inner ring, what you find out, it's like an onion. There's another layer. There's another inner ring within an inner ring. And what Jesus says to the church here is, don't get in
1: any of that stuff. You don't have to worry about that. I already have it. I hold the key.
0: What I think this text teaches us, I think of how it applies to us, is that it reminds us of the risk by Christians to mislocate the epicenter of God power, of true power. It's the Shebna mistake. Shebna had the key. He was given a derivative power from God, but he thought it was his power. You know what God did to Shebna? He threw him on his backside, stripped him of his vestments, took away the key and gave it to someone else.
1: We don't want to make. Our power is
0: not in ourselves, our power is found in Christ, and no matter what comes for the church, and believe me, I do think it's coming. I used to think I'll get through my pastoral experience before someone comes in and tells me what I can and cannot say in the pulpit, but I think it may happen during my time.
1: And if it comes, or when it comes, Jesus says, don't worry about it. I hold the key. The Shepness don't hold the key. I hold the key. Keep my word. Don't deny my name. I hold the key. Because of that, it doesn't matter how much power we have. Now, I've talked about this in a
0: political way, in a social way, political and social power, but I think That temptation also extends to us personally, individually, as believers in our own lives. We desire to have power over our own lives, over our own circumstances. Don't you feel that way? When you're facing something, a struggle in your life, whether it's an illness, a disease, a struggle in your marriage, a struggle in in your work life, a desire to be success. We have this idea that we want to have power over our circumstances, that I will fix this. I was listening to a uh, podcast this week, Hidden Brain podcast, and they were talking about hindsight bias, right? This is how we go back and look at what has happened in the past events, how they played out, and how we have this bias of wanting to put those things together in ways that make us more comfortable about our control over them, that identify good people and bad people, right? Good action and bad action, that we can explain everything because we want to explain everything, because we want to have power over our circumstances or believe that we do. We want to believe we can solve every problem, rationalize every issue, that we can control us, that we hold the keys. But we don't.
1: In that podcast, I, I, this little phrase uh, about what we should have as people, epistemic humility. We don't know everything. And Christians don't know everything. I don't know everything. You don't. We don't hold the keys over our circumstances,
0: but we know who does. That's what makes faith different. It's not your ability to figure it out. It's your ability to trust in Christ, to believe in something more, that there's something more than what you see before you in the problem or whatever it is, or even as we look at our culture, and you're feeling surrounded. Faith is the ability to see
1: more, to see beyond it.
0: I'll close with this. There's a story in the Old Testament. It's it's in 2 Kings 6, verses 8-23. through And I want to credit J. Scott Duvall for bringing this to my attention. It's a story about Elisha versus the king of Syria. The king of Syria
1: wanted to wipe out Elisha. And it's a story about
0: how one morning, or during the night I should say, the armies of Syria surrounded Elisha and his servant. This is what Deval writes, The next morning Elisha's servant woke the prophet in a terrified desperation, dragging him out to meet their doom. As the two men looked at the Syrian army, they saw two very different sights. The servant saw only the adversary.
1: Only the adversary. Elisha. He saw something
0: else. He saw the Lord's army surrounding those adversaries, an angelic host. The armies of the Lord.
1: Duvall writes, even in the midst of grim circumstances, we can be confident that the Lord will protect us.
0: That's what Jesus is calling us to do in this text. That's what he's calling us to do right now at RCRC, the church of the 21st century, to believe that he holds the keys. To see beyond What may look like an outnumbered situation, whether that's in the society, whether that's in your personal life, whether that's in the church, you are not outnumbered.
1: Because Jesus holds the key. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Beloved, he holds the key. Keep his word. Don't deny his name. See the Lord's army. See beyond. He will make you a pillar in his house. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning for eyes of faith. This is what separates us as believers the ability to see the unseen, to believe, trust, hope. And Father, I pray particularly for those who feel imprisoned.
0: Those who have had things moved on, circumstances changed, promises broken, diagnoses revealed.
1: Those who feel locked in by their circumstances, those who have had doors slammed in their face, those who feel locked out. Pray that they will know that you hold the key. I pray that in you. They would find their way out of confinement into the liberty that you bring to our lives. You came to set captives free. You hold the key. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.